Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses of it. We all are. We all saw the empty tomb. I know that we were the, the first ones to run there and see there. But you were reading the, the Judea, Judea Times. You knew that Roman soldiers were like, they couldn't guard it and that, that there was an empty tomb. That spread. You knew the Pharisees were freaking out when they couldn't find the body. You knew all this. And you, some of you probably even went there to see it for yourself. So then he was exalted to the right hand of God, Philippians chapter 2. And having received the promises of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Now all of you have seen with your own eyes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, now he quotes Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 it says this, the Lord, or Yahweh, the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, said to my Lord, now in the original Hebrew, it's the word Adonai, which just means sir or master. So Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this is the exact same scripture that Jesus quoted to the Pharisees in Luke. Okay, so the Pharisees came to him and said, hey, we don't believe that you're actually from God. And they tried to trick him with a question about taxes. And Jesus owned them. And then the Sadducees said, oh, we're going to get him now. And they came to him and questioned, said, hey, we don't believe you're from God either. The resurrection is ridiculous. And they came to him with a question, and Jesus owned them. And then Jesus says, it's my turn now. I have a question for you. Who do you say that I am? And they're like, oh, if we say he's God then the Jewish people will say, why aren't you following him and embracing him as the Messiah? And, and what's wrong with you? And we'll lose their, their following allegiance. But if we say he's not from God, then the people will hate us. Okay? And then, then they'll, 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 they'll not like us and we'll lose our power base. So they're like, we're not going to tell you. <laughs> and Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you who I am. And he quotes this passage. Now what does it mean? Jesus is saying, who is that second Lord? Who is that Adonai? David is speaking. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh are up there, said to my Lord, a second Lord, a second master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. So Yahweh is speaking to a, a, an authority over another authority over David. I'm going to make you a king over the entire world because I'm going to make your enemy your footstool. I'm going to crush your skulls. I'm going to put my feet on you and crush you. I'm going to rule over you. Okay, not literally necessarily, but metaphorically, dominion. They always believed that that was Solomon. But they knew that wasn't totally right. Because Jesus makes the point, it can't be a Solomon. Because everybody knows that a son is not greater than their father. You can never become greater than your father. Now, you might differ in American culture, but in a Jewish culture, in an ancient Greek culture, in an ancient Roman culture, any other culture, you never become greater than your parents. In fact, they do ancestral worship. When your parents die, you still pray to them and seek their guidance. You probably have seen this in the Nigo Montoya and the Prince's Bride. Um, you've probably seen this in Black Panther when he seeks out his parents in the afterlife and that kind of stuff for guidance. Okay, it's ancestral worship. You never become greater than your parents. They're always greater than you. And so he says it can't be Solomon. Even though he's the greatest king ever, he's lower than David. And there was no one greater than David other than Yahweh. 
because David was the first of all the kings, the true kings of God. Not Saul didn't count. We all know that. Okay? So who was he talking about? And they're like, oh, we're not going to say. And Jesus says, okay, I won't tell you either. Now, Jesus' point is, it's me. Yes, I'm a biological descendant of David, but the only way that they can become greater, the only way that anybody can become greater than David is that they're also God. But they can't be that Yahweh God there because Yahweh is speaking to another Lord. They're the Yahweh God of the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7. Going to the throne of God and receiving the second member of the Trinity. It's me. Now he doesn't say that right off the bat. Now a few weeks later he's put on trial by Caiaphas. And Caiaphas says, Who do you, do you say you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Behold, you will see me, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds. We talked about this, right? To judge you. And at that point Jesus says, I am God. And that Lord in Psalm 10 is me, who's God. And so Peter now takes that and requotes it back to them and says, but now we have evidence. At that point, you had his word and the miracles, but now we have him conquering the grave. And now we have the Holy Spirit. Do you now believe? That's the question. Scripture that you embrace that you've never been able to answer these complex issues, has said it. The life of Jesus has proven it. God would never allow a man to do miracles if he was blaspheming and he was falsely saying something he wasn't. And then he proves it through self-resurrection. And now the Holy Spirit is coming down upon us, fulfilling Scripture. The only thing that's at the center of all this is Christ. This is the only explanation. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay? Now, Lord is master, ruler, and they're thinking it's king. Christ comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. And so it's Messiah in the Hebrew, it's Christ in the Greek. And what it means is the chosen anointed one of God who's going to come and establish the kingdom of God on earth, literally sit on the throne over the entire earth and establish a kingdom that brings peace, joy, and life to the entire world and then crushes and destroys all evil in the world, reestablishing the Garden of Eden without sin so that all nations can flood in and then he will rule over a physical planet, over a physical people forever. That's what the word Christ and Messiah means to a Jew. The gospel is not about a God who saves you. The gospel is about a king who comes to enthrone himself, to rule over the Garden of Eden. That's the gospel. And the key to getting into this kingdom is he's your savior, your death, his death and resurrection. And so this is what he means. It is beyond doubt between Scripture and your eyes that he is that Christ, King, Ruler, Savior. So Tanhill says this, The beginning and ending of the main body of the speech emphasizes the function and disclosure. Peter begins, Let this be known to you, and concludes, Therefore let the whole house of Israel know assuredly. Forming an inclusion. Inclusion is like our word that we use for bookends. In the context, this is a new disclosure. 
For it is the first public proclamation of Jesus. Resurrection. Its significance. Acts 2, 22-36 is a compact, carefully constructed argument leading to the conclusion in verse 36. God made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, Peter not only proclaims Jesus' authority, but also reveals the intolerable situation of the audience who shares responsibility for Jesus' crucifixion. The Pentecost speech is part of the recognition scene where in a manner of tragedy, persons who have acted blindly against their own best interests suddenly recognize their interests, their, their error. This is significant. What he's basically saying is when if they fully grasp the entirety of what Peter is saying by starting with you people killed him and then ending with he is our Messiah. He is God. He is going to rule the world. The implication is, oh crap. <laughs> we killed God. We killed our God. We killed our Messiah. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were acutely distressed, horrified. What are we going to do? We're doomed. In the words of Isaiah, woe is me. I am undone, for I have seen God. And he hasn't even done anything bad to him. I mean, yes, he's a sinner with unclean lips, but he didn't actually try to kill God. And if that's what he feels is just a sinner, imagine what you're going to feel knowing that you killed God. They are now in the most angst, in the deepest sense of the word, and the soul-shaking horror of the deepest sense of the word. Some of us know what that kind of feels like. Caught in sin or done something dumb or whatever. But they've killed God. So take that feeling that you've had and push it way deeper and way further. And the horror and the angst. Their response is, And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What should we do, brothers? Now this shows you that the Holy Spirit's working. Because they didn't say, Whatever. You're a ding-dong and an idiot, and none of that makes sense. You are only scared out of your mind if the speech and the argument has convinced you. Has convinced you. And Peter said to them, Repent. This is the other thing that makes God amazing. You see, what makes God amazing is that He is the most sovereign, powerful being in the universe and all things will answer to him and they just killed him and they are now under the absolute sovereignty power of God and that makes him unique to every other God of every other religion and every other emperor or king of every other nation but the other thing that makes him unique is in the Greek mythology and all the other mythology of this time period if that happened and you did that to one of the gods you're doomed there's no hope they don't care about you you're dead. And what Peter says, repent. For God loves you. And even though you're the biggest scumbags in the world who became worse than the Canaanites as a people group and as a nation, and you not only became worse than the Canaanites, but you killed God, God still pursues you to the ends of the earth, and nothing you can ever do will separate you from him, and he will still always chase you. And this is one thing. There are other gods that are sovereign, 
There are people in your life that are loving, but there's only one being that is sovereign and loving and will pursue you no matter what you've done or thought or how long you've done it. And Peter says, repent. And this is why Jonathan Edwards gave the two most powerful speeches probably in American history. Sinners in the hands of an angry God and come to him in repentance and love. But the only one that you ever read in school and the only one that ever gets talked about is the angry evil God that wants to kill you. But nobody realizes that was a two-part sermon over two Sundays. And he started with, you people are evil, you stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. And the next Sunday, he gave the speech, but you can be circumcised of your heart, so to speak. He doesn't say those, but that's the implication. And so he says, repent, because God loves you. Jonathan Edwards gave the speech, and now Peter's doing it. Well, Peter did it first, okay? <laughs> Jonathan Edwards just was a great disciple of the word of God. And Peter says, repent, because that's why Christ came, to save you. Lord and Savior. And I know Christianity argues which one he is, and the answer is yes. And unless he's both, you're not experiencing him in his holistic fullness. If you do not come to him and say, thank you, Savior, Abba, Daddy, I'm here, and you have fellowship and intimacy with him, and at the same time you fall before his feet, and you're like, oh my gosh, my Lord, my Master, what will you have me do? then he's not holistically what you're experiencing. You're not experiencing him holistically. And this is what Peter's saying. And then you must publicly demonstrate it. You must stand before the people and be baptized. You must be cleansed of your sins. Not that baptism saves you, but baptism is what will cleanse you as an outward appearance of what's happening internally. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism was not unique to Judaism. You could get baptized in the name of Ra. You could get baptized in the name of uh, the Roman king, emperor. You get baptized in the name. The idea was when you got baptized, the Romans would sometimes baptize you with the blood of an animal. They would just pour it on top of you. Okay, Baptism was not a unique thing. It was not a unique thing to John the Baptizer. They got baptized in the First Testament according to the laws of Leviticus. So they had to do it all the time because they kept sinning. What John brings as unique is a one-time only baptism. And so what he's saying here is be baptized. And what baptism was in the mind of a Jew and the mind of a Greek was pledging your allegiance to this being and this being only. This isn't just about, we argue about like sprinkling and dunking and all that kind of stuff. And I've got thoughts and that kind of stuff. And whether you did it, that's not the point. The point was not just about saying, I've got the Holy Spirit, saying that I'm following God. The point was bowing your knee and pledging your allegiance to this God and renouncing all others. In the words of Augustine, who didn't get much right, but he got this right, it's called disorder love, making him the highest priority. You pledge your allegiance to one thing and one thing only. You bow your knee to one being and one God only. You devote your time and money to one thing and one thing only as the priority. And that's what baptism meant to everyone in the ancient world. And so what Peter is saying is, yes, get baptized as an outward confession that you've accepted Christ and the Holy Spirit's in you, but that's a kind of a watered-down version. No pun intended, I actually didn't think about that. Um, what it really means is that you're going to stand before everybody and bow your knee to Christ, and you're going to say, he's my king. Not the emperor. Not Zeus. Not Athena. 
He's my king. And that's the same thing for us. When we get in front of the church, we should be bowing our knee. I'm not saying, if you want to do that, that's fine. If that's important to you and you're going, I'm going to take that's fine, but I'm not saying you should. I mean, metaphorically, you should be standing in front of the congregation saying, I'm bowing my knee to this. God. I'm not bowing it to my hobbies. I'm not bowing it to my 80 hours of work. I'm not bowing it to the, the American dream. I'm not bowing it to anything else. I'm not bowing it to my own power, my own need to be right. I'm bowing it to God and God alone. And yes, the gods are coming back in America in a literal, real sense. But the gods are also other things too. Disordered love. What you're saying is, I'm going to seek to the best of my ability through my dependence and prayer and surrendering the Holy Spirit to make Christ the highest ordered love in my life. That's what baptism really, truly means at its core. And that's what Peter's saying. Stop bowing down to Judaism, the Torah, being chosen by God, the Pharisees, the temple. This is your God, period. That's it. And so Peter's calling him to that. So that you may forgive your sins. So that you may not be left in that shame and guilt that you're feeling right now, that horror. See, shame and guilt are good. Without shame and guilt, we don't know that we've done something wrong. It doesn't motivate us to do the difficult sacrifices that we need to make to change our life, to create the physical difficult boundaries that we need to keep ourselves from doing it again, to physically and difficultly, difficult, difficultly to confess our sins before everybody and know that they all know that I am this and to accept their rebuke and their counseling and their guide and their accountability not do that again. Okay? That's important. Guilt and shame is good because it's what motivates you to do that. But when you're left in that guilt and shame and it never gets dealt with or people make you stay in it and they rub your face in it or you force yourself to wallow in it, then it just destroys you. And there's this, this, there's this difficult moment where you have it and you feel it. And if you can do something with it in that moment, it can be the thing that you need to change your life. But if you don't act on it, and then you just eat it and absorb it, or you allow other people to push your face in it, then it will destroy you and ruin you. And only the love and the forgiveness of Christ allows you to be in it just long enough to know that you need him and to have the desire and the ability to do what is necessary to take him and then come to his forgiveness so that it can all be dealt with. There is no shame and guilt for those who are in Christ. But without guilt and shame, you won't come to him and cling to him and embrace him. And that's how it works. Yes, guilt and shame are important because without that, there is no change. There is no conviction. But it is only the forgiveness and the love of Christ that keeps you from staying there. And it keeps you from allowing other people keeping you there for what you've done. And this is the complete gospel message. That Jesus is your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your King. Repent of everything that you've done where you've made other things a more important thing in your life than this God right here. Repent of how you violated him. You've wronged him. That guilt and your shame, you should feel it. You're wrong. You're evil. You have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You should feel the horror of it all. But God has saved you too. He loves you. He will not leave you there. 
come to him so that you may experience his love, you may experience his forgiveness, that he can take away your shame, your guilt, your sin, your angst, your horror. And then when you bow down to him, he will use you as a powerful tool image of God to build his kingdom. And you will experience things that you've never experienced when you are on your own, doing your own thing with your own gods, whether literal or not. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And when we take one little part of it, as true as it might be, we don't do it justice when there's so many other facets to it. For all the promise, sorry, in the name of Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, you will be changed. You will now have the power. And that loops us right back to Acts 1.8. You will now be the tool, the image of God that you were meant to be, that you could never be, but only through Christ you can to become and expand the garden. For the promises, the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far away, as many as the Lord your God will call to himself. It's for everyone. There's no hierarchy anymore. This is a hierarchy in the sense of like, you have to have people making decisions be led, but there's no hierarchy that one person is greater than the other. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, save yourselves from this perverse generation. Now he doesn't mean save yourself. What he means is do what you need to do to be saved. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added. That's a lot of people. That was a powerful message through the power of the Holy Spirit with the testimony and the evidence and the witness of Christ's life. And when Peter connected all the dots to them, they got it. Now you might, there's a lot of people like 3,000, that's ridiculous. The Bible just exaggerated those numbers. However, yeah, that's a lot. But at this time in Israel, during the festivals, Israel would have anywhere between 180 to 200,000 people. So 3,000 out of that many people is actually not that big of a number. And so a lot of people, they, they don't realize, they're like, well, there weren't that many people in the ancient world at that time, and Israel is about the size of New Jersey with the population of New Jersey, and you're like, there's no way they could, 3,000, he's like, no, 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 no. Remember people from all over the world are flooding, the Roman world, are flooding in Jerusalem for these festivals. So this city has just bloated itself now. And when you think about almost everyone is there, Okay, almost everyone is there because this is near the temple and everyone's there to do their festivals. Lots of people heard this. It becomes more realistic. Yes, it's like, wow, 3,000 people. But it is still a reasonable, realistic number. But it's also the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense, too, that it wouldn't be a realistic, reasonable number because it's the power of God. So we need to put it in that complicated context. And 3,000 come. And that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And this is the beginning of the church. And then they got baptized. And yes, there would have been enough water. A lot of people are like, that's not, there's no way. Well, you probably have never been to Israel if you're saying that. Because in Israel, there's lots of springs and lots of pools. Okay, and they're everywhere. Because in Israel, specifically, well, I should correct myself, Jerusalem has the temple. And everyone has to get baptized before they go into the temple to do their sacrifices. The ritual cleansing that Leviticus prescribed. And when you have 180 to 200 people at a festival 
who all at different times in a week need to get baptized before they go into the tabernacle in order to do their sacrifices so they can come back out and do it again, then yeah, over the years you've built lots of pools from the springs to handle all of that. The point is the church was launched with an amazing event that connected so many dots. And the Holy Spirit did something miraculous and the hearts of these ding-dong disciples and then connected the dots for these people who killed God and exploded the church with 3,000 people who got it and confessed, which is now going to launch the long process of the expansion of the church. Yes, we camped out on this a long time, but this is important. Because without understanding this, you cannot understand everything else that is coming in Acts and most of the points that Paul is making about who we are today in Christ.